I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to the book of James, please. The second chapter of James. We'll be finishing this second chapter this week. And then next week, uh, Pastor Fuller will be here. And then on the 30th, um, we start our Advent season. Can you believe that? Christmas Advent already. Uh, we'll start on the 30th as the first Sunday of Advent. So once we finish this uh, chapter this morning, we're going to have a break from James for a month or so. And in January, we'll pick it back up. At least that's the plan. Page 1012, if we're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the seats there. James 2, verse 14. Let us read the word of the living God. I hope that sometimes, whenever, I hope that when you, when you pick up the word of God and you see it sitting there before you, I hope there's a sense of awe, a sense of respect, a sense of appreciation and thankfulness that we have the words of God right here. James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, <clears throat> if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It is this text that sits before us this morning that caused Martin Luther to call James a right strawy epistle. Now, what that means, I have no idea. But what I think it means is that he was a little suspicious of the book because of these things called faith without works is that or was not Abraham justified by works. At first, Martin Luther began to position the book of James against Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in the Reformation, there was that idea of, that was one of the, the solas, if you will, of the Reformation of being justified by faith alone. And so what we need to ask ourselves when we look at this text of Scripture is, is this in competition with the Pauline doctrine of justification, or is it a nuanced approach to it or just a different facet of it. 
And what, what, what James, the question really he's asking here is he's asking, is our faith alive or dead? That's really the question that he's asking. You know, it's a scene that is seen in many TV shows or movies. The villain is finally brought down and uh, maybe by a, a gunshot or something and the people go up to him and, is he dead? Is he alive? And the music, the tension is, is, is the music is bringing the tension up and, the, and, and you're waiting and all of a sudden the guy's eyes open up, right? He's not dead, right? This, this theatric tension and, and climax in the movie there. Much the same question we need to ask about our faith. Is it true? Is it alive? Or is it dead? Now, we cannot approach this text without feeling incredible amounts of tension. Because on the one hand, we don't want to overstate what this text is saying. Because if we do so, we do it to our peril and we do it to uh, the uh, disagreement of the rest of Scripture. But on the other hand, we need to take what this text of Scripture is saying and we need to really hold on to it and believe it and let it cause, uh, let the Spirit of God use it to to cause growth and uh, maturity in our faith and lives. So as we go through this text, we're going to feel this tension um, of this, and hopefully at the end of this we'll have a greater appreciation, though, of what this text means for us. So James wants us to understand a basic theological truth about saving faith, and here's that truth. Faith without works is dead, but faith that is alive is made obvious by works. And he teaches us by using four illustrations in this text. And his main point is that saving faith will always produce works. So works does not necessarily mean that there is true faith, but true faith will always manifest itself by true works. This is the thesis of James's statement here. And he uses four illustrations and then he closes with one metaphor to teach this. So how do we know if faith is alive or dead? And nuanced discussions are very difficult to have and sometimes it's best to get understanding through use of illustrations and metaphors and that is why I think James took this approach here. Now, he gives us these four um, illustrations in what's called a chiastic construction. Okay, it comes from the Greek word chi, which looks like an X to us. And it's a, it's a way that uh, often these ancient writers would, would write these things out. And I believe it was primarily used for emphasis and memory aid. Remember, not everyone was able to read. Not everyone had copies of the scriptures. And so often the way they wrote or in the way they spoke, they spoke or wrote in ways that would be uh, spoken to or read in, in the presence of people. And then, then they would have to learn it some ways. And so the illustration that he uses follows this, 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 this kind of construction. You'll see this all throughout the Bible, actually. It's, it's a great way to memorize things and, and to see the emphasis. And so the, the first illustration is, is that he, he, what I call the encourager. There's, there's an encourager here. And that's that first person that he knew about a need and then he told the people to go and be warmed and filled. The second one that he talks about is the demon or the demons. And we see that that is more in a, a, a closer to the middle. 
And then the third one, he talks about a patriarch of Abraham. And then the final one is a prostitute. Now, when you look at these four illustrations together, you'll see that the first and the fourth one actually complement each other, and the middle two complement each other as well. And so as we go through this text, you can kind of see this construction. You can kind of see this is the emphasis that he, that James is drawing to our minds here, and it'll help us remember what he is trying to teach. So let's look at these illustrations one at a time. First of all, the encourager. Remember in verse 14, he, he starts this, this conversation here by asking a question about can this certain type of faith save someone? Now, the way that he wrote this question is he wrote it with a, with a negative word into the question, so it was anticipating a negative answer. And we do this all the time in our own language. We, we ask questions where we are anticipating or we are actually trying to lead, actually, the person to respond in a, a negative way. And this is what James is doing here when he says, if a brother says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith really save him? And the answer that James is looking for is no. And so he gives this, this illustration here of this, this brother or sister that is poorly clothed and they lack what they need each day. And so there's a person here with an obvious need and then someone recognizes that need and, and James makes it very personal here. I don't know if you saw the, the, the very personal pointed way. He says, and one of you says to them, Remember, James is writing to people, the Christians that were scattered abroad. They were probably people that were part of his Jerusalem church. That because of the persecution after Stephen that we read about in Acts, that caused the Christians to scatter. And this is who James is writing to. He's writing to people who he once pastored and, and who he knew very well. And he says, what if one of you said to him? What if one of you responded in this way? Now, the person tells the person now of one of two things here, and it's hard to know exactly which one he's saying, but the end point is still the same. He says, go in peace, be warmed, and filled. Now, the question is that um, wordsmiths have and that, and that people who study the, the ancient language as well and better than I do, what they, what, they struggle, what they struggle with here is in that phrase there in verse 16, go and in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, the idea of be warmed, is that passive or is that what's called middle? Now, in the English language, we typically have active and passive. Active is, you know, I hit the ball, okay? Passive is, I was hit by the ball. So active, you're doing the action. Passive, you're receiving the action. In Greek, we have another voice called middle voice, and that means you're doing and receiving the action. So the best way I can think to describe this is I'm hitting myself with the ball, <laughs> okay? Um, and so the question is, is this written in a passive form or in a, in a, in a middle form? Now, the difference is, is that on the one hand, what he's telling them to do is you go and let someone else fill your need here. The other hand, the other interpretation, the other option is to say, you go and meet your own need. You go and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get a job and meet your own need. Now, I'm not sure exactly which one. I think it can go either way. But either way, the person, the encourager here, if you will, instead of meeting the need, instead of taking time to help meet the need, he insinuates either at best that someone else should help meet their need or at worst that they need to stop being lazy and meet their own need. 
And so this is the, 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 the thought that James is trying to compare, uh, convey here. That this person, he, he sees the need. He or she sees the need that this brother or sister has. But then leaves the solution up to somebody else. Whether that be somebody else or that person very uh, specifically. This person can say that they are, now before, well, let me say this before I say this. Before we get too hard on this person, we could easily find ways to justify why someone would respond this way. Maybe this person's trusting in the sovereignty of God. Maybe that's what they would say. They would say that I'm trusting a sovereign God provide your need for you. Go be warmed and filled. God will take care of you. He will give you exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. God's plans for you are much greater than what you can even conceive for your own soul. So go and let God provide for you. See, the first way I started talking about it, it's easy to start thinking very negatively about this encourager, but the second way, it starts to strike home, but maybe sometimes how we respond to people. We respond to people in ways of, of, of what sounds actually pious or good, but we're not taking the time to help meet the needs. Now, the illustration that James is giving here is he's saying that if someone truly has faith, they're going to seek to try to help in any ways. And he says, you know, if, if you send that person away without helping them, without giving them what is needed, what good is that? He says, faith without works, or excuse me, faith by itself and does not have works is dead. And so the lesson here is that it does no one good to merely acknowledge a need. We need to be a people who seek to meet the needs of others, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ. But you see, the problem here goes much deeper than lack of productivity. This lack of action on the person's part may indicate that their faith is, is dead. For this person to believe that God will take care of the poor brother or sister and not seek to help them themselves shows a lack of faith and clearly not a faith that saves. And so I would summarize this point this way. Put it on the screen. Faith that is dead acknowledges the problem, but doesn't do anything about it. Rather, it encourages people to find help elsewhere. And so we need to ask ourselves that if we truly have faith in God, that we are going to then do what? We're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. This theme keeps coming up in, in, our, in, our, in our preaching here at our church because I believe it's, it's, it's a core understanding that we all must have in our church. And if we're going to understand the Bible, if we're going to understand Jesus, then we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And true faith, when, when, we are, when, we are, um, when we're changed and transformed by Jesus Christ, we begin to seek to meet the needs of other people. Now, we can take every illustration too far. And these are illustrations that James is giving here. Obviously, there are needs that we cannot meet. And we cannot meet every need that we come in contact with. I don't think that's James's point here. But there should be a desire. There should be an attempt. There should be a seeking in your own soul. Am I the person to meet this need? Can I help meet this need? What has God given me in order to help this person right now? And, and what should I be doing? Am I part of the solution? These are questions that we should be asking. But see, the problem is many times when we see a need, it's, boy, I sure hope someone helps them. I sure hope that they're able to get ahead a in life. And I think what James is warning us here is he's saying, if we truly have been changed by Jesus, 
then we're going to seek to help others. Is that not the spirit of Christ? Is that not how Christ interacts with us in the world? And that, and that he, at, at, at no gain really to himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. And he became obedient even to, the form, even, even to death, even the death of the cross. And, and so we have Jesus here as our example. Jesus wasn't just the encourager of, boy, I sure hope someone helps those people out down there. Or, you know what, you guys just need to get better. Jesus took on humanity, and he lived a perfect life. He conquered sin. He conquered death by raising again after dying an unjust death. And then he's bringing us, and he's shaping us into more like him, like himself. One of the things I'm going to share with the people at Union Grove this afternoon is that, and the theme that I was asked to speak on was, the church is God's masterpiece. And one of the things I'm going to remind them of is the church is made up of God's love gifts and that, and that according to John 17, the Father gave people to the Son. He said, I've given them to you. Jesus said, you've given these to me. And part of the reason is that Jesus then changes and transforms people and makes them new, gives them new life, gives them their new creation, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And so this is what Jesus does. According to Colossians 1, he will then do what? He will present us blameless and holy before God. You see, true faith transforms. Now, we have peaks and valleys. But the illustration that James has given here is he's asking a person, he says, if you see a need and, and you're not willing to try to meet this need, is that really saving faith that you have? You claim to know God and, and you've claimed that Jesus has saved you and transformed you, but yet you don't want to take time to help others. Is that true faith James wants us to ask. The second illustration he moves on to in our text is he talks about some demons. And he illustrates this and, and he kind of brings up a hypothetical situation of someone saying, he says, well, wait a minute here. Basically, what's, what's going on here is um, you say that you have faith and, you, and, and works. You know, I'm, I'm not gifted in the works category, but I'm really gifted in the faith category. You might be more gifted in the works category here. This is this hypothetical situation that he's bringing up. And so what James says, he says, no, I'm going to show you faith by my works. Works show that there are faith, that there is faith. Works, that's the purpose of that or, or part of the purpose of that. And he, so he then gives this illustration of the demons and he says that you believe that, <clears throat> excuse me, God is one, you do well. Now, James could have gone to any doctrinal truth of the scriptures, but what he highlights here is what's called the Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. This would have been a prayer that all good Jewish people would have, would have uttered and known. And the first part of this prayer is that, Hear, Israel, know that the Lord God is one. Okay? And so this would have been a foundational, cardinal truth that they would have understood. And, and we know that James is writing to at least a mixed audience. There, there was a, if it wasn't Jews and Gentiles, we know for sure that there were Jews in his audience. And so he brings this core doctrinal truth. And he says, you believe that, that God is one. You do well. That's good. You should believe that. But even the demons understand doctrine about God. James could have used several doctrinal points to prove his point, but he uses this very popular and familiar Shema here. According to James, the demons have faith in God. They believe that he is one. They believe in the Shema. 
But the result is intense fear, that peace. The word shudder there has the idea of your hair standing on end because of terror that has happened in your life. And so he says that they, they know that God is one. They have a good doctrinal statement. And because of that, they, they are terrified of God. James is saying that having a doctrinal statement, a correct doctrinal statement, isn't enough. We talked about this in the adult discipleship hour. It came up where having a simple uh, 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 or just academically assenting or intellectually assenting to doctrinal truths is not enough. There are a lot of people who believe in God but do not have saving faith. And this is the point that he's bringing up. And so correct doctrinal statements do not equal saving faith. And it's possible to believe that God exists and know nothing of the peace of God. My fear is that our churches are full of people who they, they, could, they could answer quizzes about the Bible and they could answer questions about God correctly. But they have no peace with God. I'm not talking about the wrestling of our faith that we all go through. We struggle with that. I'm talking about the, the people who, who they can continue year after year with no with no outward desire or inclination of God. Spiritual conversations are difficult. These are the people I'm thinking of is is that they they come to church week after week after week, and yet when you try to talk to them about spiritual things, they deflect the conversation. They want to talk about something else. I'll be honest, I'm concerned for people like that. It's not my place to judge their, their heart or their faith or the validity of their faith. I don't know that. Only God knows that. And I try not, and I, I do not dare place myself in any type of position of being able to know categorically if someone has saving faith or not. Only God knows that. And this is why James is writing to all of us, so all of us would take this into account. But I do know, and this is part of this tension that we talked about earlier, that there's this tension between we don't want to be God and we know that God can do all things and God can be working for years and years and years behind the scenes. And so we don't want to discount that. But at the same time, we're also told that by their fruits, we will know them. And so there's this tension here of how do we interact with this? Well, I think the answer is, is that we interact about our own soul. We don't necessarily need to see in judgment of anyone else, but when we, we need to look at our own soul, we need to be very honest with ourselves. When we look ourselves in the mirror, and remember that was an illustration that, gave, that James gave earlier in chapter 1 of looking into the mirror and seeing things, and he says, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And so that's my plea to you again as well, my brothers and sisters and my friends who have gathered here today, is that, that look into the word of God, and, and whatever you see, act on that. Don't just look at it. Don't just come to church and hear things over and over again, and then continue with your life, go to the Word of God and let it transform you. This is what I pray. This is my longing is that you would see the Word of God and it would transform you. Because I know it's possible to have the right answers and yet have no relationship with God like these demons. That scares me. It scares me that Our church has people just like that. And so my plea to you is not to think of other people necessarily. To look at your own soul. If James was writing 
if he was standing here today and, and he was talking to you very specifically, which I believe he is by the Spirit of God, would your faith measure up? Is it a live faith or is it dead faith? And so, like I said, there's tension here. We don't want to play the role of God. But we do need to identify people by fruits in our lives, and so we, we do this in our own soul. You know, this is why when I teach here, when I teach the teens, the children, or wherever, I often say things like, if you're not a Christian, because I'm usually confident that we have unbelievers in our midst. I may not know their name, But I can't help but think that with a group this size, there are people who are just like this demon. They believe in the idea of God, but there is no love for God, no submission to his plan. Consequently, I fear for their soul. You see, this is why I think youth ministry is so important. And the best thing I've told the teens, the best thing that I can do for them is to teach them the Bible and pray that God grants them faith. So there's tension here. The bar has been set way too low in our churches. People, if they just say that, yes, I'm a Christian, we often just think, okay, great, and there's no fruit to back that up. We never, we're not concerned by that. But you see, the answer to this tension isn't to to raise the bar and say, okay, now what you need to do to prove that you're a Christian is you need to memorize this, you need to do this. See, that's missing the point too. Again, tension here. So on one hand, the bar is way too low that if anyone just says, I'm a Christian, we say, yeah, great, they're a Christian, and we we don't think anything else about it. But the other hand is people can do good things and not be Christians as well. So the answer here, I believe, is that we need to go to the Scriptures and we need to go to the Word of God and we need to say, Spirit of God, confirm in me that I am yours. And teach me, and that, and give me a faith that is active, and that I, and there, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to have have difficulties. You know, we are going to struggle in our relationship with God. I was meditating earlier on Psalm 10, and it said this. You don't have to turn it if you want to, but it, um, let me just say this: the beginning. David says, "Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble?" This is how he starts that psalm. And I've felt that way before. And we can look at that and we could say, he has no faith there. But look how he ends it, or let me read how he ends it at the end after dealing with this conflict with God and and praying and crying out to God. He says, he ends the psalm, the very same psalm. He says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, so that the man who's of the earth may strike terror no more. After his dealing with God, his wrestling with God, he comes out worshiping God. Questioning God in the beginning, he ends by worshiping God. That's a sign of a live faith. So when I'm saying that a live faith, do you have dead faith or live faith? I'm not asking, do you ever struggle? I'm not asking, do you ever question God? But I'm asking, do you end in worship of God? There's the test. So this demon here, he doesn't end by worshiping God. He believes that God is one, but he is just terrified of God. So I think this is best taken as a warning to our own soul. James wants us to know 
The faith, and I put this on the screen, faith that is dead only produces fear of God. And not the healthy kind of fear of God. So if we consistently only have a fear of God, but no peace with God, we have to ask ourselves if we are really saved. So here are the first two illustrations that James gives. Two negative illustrations. The next two are two positive illustrations. Let's look at these. Illustration number three is the patriarch, and he references Abraham here. And he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, does James contradict Paul here in this idea of justification by works? I think the best way to say this without diving too deeply into this is that Paul and James are fighting two different enemies. They're not crossing each other. Like one person who I was reading wrote, it says they're, they're, it's like they're fighting back to back, different enemies, and they're, they're, they're going to war against different uh, perversions of the gospel. And so what James is here, he's not contradicting Paul at all when he says this. But he's saying that the justification by faith was proven by the work, is what he was saying there. So consider Abraham's story, and you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 22 is when we start reading about this. And earlier we know that Abraham was promised a son. And he was promised that, that, that um, it would be from Abraham, that, that, that he would have an offspring, and it would be, you know, as many as the stars of the sky or the sands uh, of the sea. And, and, and so for, for years, Abraham believes this, and so he has faith in God. And so for 25 years, he's believing this, and it's not happening. A year goes by, another year goes by, another year goes by, and it's not happening. And so finally, at some point, his wife encourages him to take take advantage of a law, loophole law that was available to them, that if an offspring wasn't coming, then that he could use another woman to, to bring offspring, to bring heirs into the family. And so he does this, of course. And, and may, maybe you remember the story of, of Hagar and, and how Ishmael was born as a, result of this, as a result of this union that Abraham had. And of course that created problems and tension. And, and it, was, it was just not a good situation from the beginning. So Abraham had faith, right? He, he's, he's the father. You know, he says, our father Abraham, he's the hero of this day and, 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 and of our faith. And we looked at Abraham, but his faith wavered. Be encouraged by that, okay? It's impossible to have faith that wavers. And so for 25 years, he waits, and then he tries to go around and make, make it happen on his own. And tension happens, and... Then finally, Isaac is born by Sarah. Isaac, he's referred to as your only son. It was, it was almost Abraham had no other sons. It was the fulfillment of God's promise, his plan. It was a great day. Then God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son. Your only son. God says that. I want you to take him up on the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Could you imagine that? 
Now, there's a lot of foreshadowing going on here about what God's going to do with Jesus, and there's great theological truths that are happening in place here. But Abraham didn't know this. Abraham didn't grab Isaac and be like, hey, this is going to be a picture of Jesus. Let's do this thing. He didn't. But he had intense faith there that was proven by him going up the mountain. What was his faith in at that moment? Well, in Genesis 22, he, he's, he's, let me just read one verse to you real quickly here. He says this in, in verse 5. He said, and he's telling the servants that are with him, he's giving them instruction, and he says, we're going to go up in this mountain. But in Genesis 22, 5, he says this. He says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So clearly, Abraham he was willing to sacrifice his son, but he knew he had faith because God had promised that, that he was the, the, the way the blessings would come and that the generations would come. So he knew that somehow Isaac was going to come down from that mountain with him. Well, how do you think that? I think I, uh, the book of Hebrews gives us the answer. In Hebrews chapter 11, in this text of scripture that people refer to as the great hall of faith, if you will, in verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who when he had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Verse 19, the author of Hebrews gives us the answer to what was going through Abraham's mind. He said he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So he was willing to kill his son because he had faith in God, but his faith was so strong, he said, but he can raise him up and he will come down the mountain with me. And so in faith, he picked the knife up. Now, you know the story that, or maybe you do, that um, as he was beginning to raise the knife up, the angel stopped and said, wait, now God knows that your faith is sincere. Now, God knew but God condescends and often in the scriptures to be represented in ways that we can understand. That faith was proven at that moment. Faith was proven there. And so here's the positive example of our patriarch here is that God does not require perfect faith, but he does require us to act upon his commands while trusting in him, even if we don't fully understand what God is doing. And so acting or being a doer of the word, and not just a hearer only, completes our faith. Did you see that in the text there? It says that you, um, in, uh, where was it? In verse 22, in faith was completed by his works. So works complete what we say we have. It proves that faith is legitimate. It's living True faith transforms. The process might be slow and there might be relapses, again, like Abraham and the whole thing with Ishmael. But the general trajectory of a saved person's life is transformation. And so I ask you, is God transforming your life? That is an evidence of saving faith. It could be slow, there's relapses, but is God changing you? The actions of Abraham complete as faith. James is here illustrating the relationship of faith and works. Now, what I want you to see is how, remember, this is contrast to the demon. And the demon's response is fear, but the response of Abraham is friendship. Did you see that? 
What brought friendship with God was not that Abraham had a better doctrinal statement than the demon. It was that Abraham was completely dependent upon God, entrusting with him in, with everything, even what he held most dear. It says that he was called a friend of God. And so faith that is alive produces friendship with God. We go to God as a friend, not as someone whom we are terrified of. Now, there is a healthy fear of God. Again, there's tension here. You don't want to overstate something. But the healthy fear of God does not mean that we lose the friendship of God. The last illustration that he gives is a prostitute. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? He briefly mentions Rahab here, and this account is found in Joshua chapter 2, and you know, uh, I think he's doing this because of a contrast situation here. He wants to contrast, you know, with Abraham who was revered and, and someone who had strong faith. And then we have someone who was a prostitute. And there's, there's great contrast there. But we see that her faith, her work showed that she had great faith. The story goes is that back in Gen uh, uh, Joshua 2 is that there were spies sent to go into Jericho and take the land as God was giving the land over to the Israelites and the conquest was happening. And so the spies went into Jericho and they were scouting out the land and, and they came to Rahab's house and, and she was known as a prostitute. She, her house was in the wall of the city and and. Government officials came in and demanded where these spies were at. And she said they, they had left. She lied for them and said that they had already left. But she had really hidden them up in the roof of her home. And, and uh, when they came down, when the government officials left and the spies came back down, Rahab said, remember me. I believe in your God. I believe in him. And when he gives this city over to you, Remember me. Remember my family. And so the spies said to her, because of your great act of faith and, and willing to help people out at great risk to yourself, your family will be saved. Get everyone here. And so they told her to tie a red rope in her window so that when the armies came in, they could see that red rope and say, hey, that family's saved. That family is, is separate. That family is is not to be touched. And they didn't. Uh, story goes on that in ancient literature, and we don't see this in the scriptures, um, tradition says that Rahab then became the, the wife of Joshua. We don't know exactly for sure, but we do know that Rahab became an example of faith because she believed in God. Now the lesson here is, is really in contrast to that person we started with in the beginning in verse 16. The, the person who said that, well, go and be, be warmed and filled. Go in peace. The contrast is that she was willing to help them. She saw their need. She acknowledged their need and she helped them. She showed that God had given her active living faith. And, she, and this was seen in her quick thinking during a, a tense situation. And so I summarize it this way. Faith that is alive not only acknowledges the problem, but also seeks to meet the need even if there is great personal risk involved. This is living faith. This is Rahab's faith. 
Now we can look at these illustrations and we can say, okay, we get what James is trying to say over and over again. That if I truly have faith in God, it will be seen by how I live my life. And if my life does not reflect God, then I have to wonder, do I really have saving faith? This is the serious question. James ends with a metaphor. Verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is, from works is dead. So as a body can, can lay there in a funeral home and there's no soul there, there's no spirit in them, it's dead. The body's there. The body's there. You can see it. You can touch it. You can look at it. But it's, there's no life there as, as, because the spirit is gone. He says, as that body is dead, so faith... The body, without works, the spirit is dead. So I ask you this morning, is your faith alive or dead? Do you have a fear of God? Or do you have friendship with God? Abraham held nothing back from God. What, are you holding something back from God? Rahab helped the needy at great risk to herself. Does your life show evidence of faith? James says that he shows us his faith by what he does. So the question is, is your faith on display? Not on display as in a pharisaical sense, and uh, to be seen of men, but in a transformation sense. That the faith that God has given you is benefiting those around you. Faith and works are inseparable for the true Christian. Works does not mean that faith exists, because we can do good things without faith. But living faith will always produce works. Now maybe someone's here and you say, Jeremy, I, I don't know that I have living faith. What do I do? Here's a simple answer. Ask God for it. Ask God for it. Jesus said, whoever, or the scriptures say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here today and you're wrestling, do I have living faith or am I just agreeing that God exists and that there is a God and, and that and it's not enough to save my soul? I would just encourage you to say, just pray to God. God, give me faith. Help me to follow Jesus. And then let's talk. God answers those prayers. And for those of us who maybe we we are believers and we do have living faith. Let this be an encouragement to us to, to make sure that our, our faith is benefiting people around us, is helping people around us as a result and the evidence of God's transforming work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we've taken time to look at a text of scripture that is easily misunderstood or misapplied, and I pray that we have not done that this morning. But Father, I pray that we would have faith that is alive, that is transforming, that is evidence of being transformed, and is helping those around us. Much like the Rahab helped the spies at risk to herself, she was willing to do that because of her faith in God. Much like Abraham was willing to give up what was most dear to him because of faith in you, I pray you grant us that same faith. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. 
because we sure do need it. Please strengthen our faith this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let's stand.